0: Hey, it's Katie. Thanks so much for listening. If you get a moment, give us a good rating on iTunes if you like the show. And consider giving us a donation. There's a donate button at our website, thebittersweetlife.net. What little you can give helps the show keep going and stay free. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. Tiffany is away this week and I'm on the road again down in Portland, Oregon with our guest Rob Spillman, editor and co-founder of Tin House, one of America's most influential literary magazines. It's been around for 16 years and right now we're actually in Portland because of the Tin House Summer Writers Workshop, which is in its 13th year. He also is the author of a memoir called All Tomorrow's Parties. Anything else you want to tell him?
1: Not not that I can think of. Beautiful day here in Portland. We're under a bridge on the Reed University campus where we do the Tin House Writers Workshop.
0: Yeah, we're sitting by a river and we were saying, I don't know how many people watch Portlandia, but we were trying to put ourselves in a nice quintessential Portland spot.
1: We could be at the, the feminist bookstore, but uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or riding a bike around going, can't you see me? Can't you see me?
0: Too long of a journey to do any of that. So part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is because of your childhood. The fact that you grew up in Berlin. So can you tell me about your childhood?
1: Sure. I was born and raised in West Germany. My parents are American classical musicians that went to the Eastman School of Music And then got Fulbright scholarships to go to Germany. Wound up staying because uh, the classical music environment there is much more supportive. And you, you can actually make a living there. So they wound up staying. And I was born in Stuttgart and quickly moved to Berlin right after I was born. My parents separated shortly after I was born. And my mother came back to the U.S. and I stayed with my father which was fairly unusual for the time, especially since he is gay. So I grew up mainly with a a single gay father in West Berlin at the height of the Cold War. Then I went back, when the wall came down, uh, lived on the east side in an anarchist block that was where skinheads would come in every night and try to firebomb us. So the book bounces back and forth between my childhood at sort of the height of the Cold War in the gay opera world. And then sort of the anarchist pre-unification days, but after the wall had come down, go go back and forth between those two.
0: So that's a lot. So (laughs) hang on, let me go back just a bit. So do you know now why your parents decided to keep you in Germany rather than go with your mother to the United States? Was it a a parental choice or a conscious choice to keep you in a, a different culture?
1: I think it was more financial. My, my mother had put her, she was a singer, she had put her career kind of on hold to raise me and then he kind of came out and it was a big mess. So she went back to the US to kind of get herself back together, get a master's degree, and so she could teach, so she could call for me. I wasn't privy to any of this. They didn't talk about each other after they split. With me. So I had no idea that this was going on. I only found out after the fact that this was going on. So to me, it was like my mother just vaporized, basically. So I don't know how conscious it was, but my father was the more financially reliable one at the time.
0: So did you remember her? Or did she leave so soon?
1: Yeah, and well, I would visit her. I would, you know, get put on a plane from Germany and go all the way to New Orleans, where she was. I would visit her, which was totally alien-like, you know. And then my father started, he was the musical director for the opera program at Chautauqua, New York. We started spending our summers in Chautauqua, and so then I would go see her from there. But again, I would be put on a plane by myself. I didn't really, I don't know, spend any time with her until I was 10 and moved to Baltimore with her. She remarried someone from the Baltimore Symphony. I wound up being put into the boys' Latin school of Baltimore, which is all-white male, racist, homophobic, anti-intellectual. And so I went from the sort of the queer opera world of Berlin to the super preppy, anti-intellectual, homophobic.
0: Good Lord Almighty. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I... I
1: loved it. I loved it. It was a really good time for me and uh you, I,
0: you loved the school in Baltimore. Oh yeah. And
1: uh, I um I hated it so much. I took <laughs> extra extra classes so I could graduate a year early. So I graduated when I was 16. Both of my parents actually thought that I was driven just like they were. They just thought that I was just as passionate because they both knew from the age of 4 exactly what they wanted to do, both of them. It was their way out of there small towns music was. So my father's from central Kentucky, from Berea, Kentucky, and my mother's from southern Illinois, tiny town called Ziegler, Illinois. Music was their way out. So they thought I was similarly determined when actually I was just determined to get the freak out (laughs) of Baltimore, you know, and boys Latin.
0: It's always so hard to know why your parents make the decisions that they do, even if you talk to them about it lately. But do you know why she would have picked a place like that? Was she counteracting the early influence or was it just sort of the best school in her opinion? Or? Yeah,
1: she. It was a combination of, like, I think she, she thought I needed a little corrective from my kind of really loose first 10 years. You know, she asked around and people said, oh, it's a good school and it's more liberal than the other one. I mean, there were some really repressive schools in Baltimore at the time. She didn't know that there was like a... A friends school which is like co-ed and Quaker and which would have been a better thing for me she just really she didn't know you know and I also you know part of the struggle of writing a book like this is and why it took me ten years is like you know my material is I have really good material that makes for like good barroom stories you know it's like yeah I went from queer opera world to you know like this ridiculous straight world um but I didn't say anything when I was at Boys Latin. I didn't say, hey mom, dad, you know, I'm miserable and like send me someplace else. Like I passed, you know, I got good grades. I just hunkered down until I could get out. So I could have made life much easier for myself if I would just spoken up and said, this sucks. <laughs> but I also didn't have any frame of reference. You know, this is what I thought US schools were like. and that they suck, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you know. know, German schools are really rigorous and I was an average student in Germany and then I came to the US and I was like, suddenly brilliant, you know, and I was like, I am not brilliant, this is just really easy and like not rigorous at all and there's no room for interpretation or thought, it's just like rote memorization and like, I'm dying, you know. Yeah.
0: You uh, not only have the transition of living with your father and all that came with that, then moving in with your mother, who you don't really know, uh, but you also have to switch countries. Yes. So I can't even imagine... Do you remem- remember, like, what you were going through at that period of time as far as a yes. young man?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, even though I am, you know, a U.S. citizen, my parents are U.S. citizens, I considered myself German, because that was my point of reference. And even though I was, like, in that sort of expat, multicultural community... I didn't have a lot of American cultural references. We lived near a U.S. Army base, and we would go see movies there, but they were like kind of indie cutting-edge movies, weirdly, at the Army PX. Like, I remember seeing Five Easy Pieces and just like, you know, really uh, trippy things there as a little kid and going, like, what is this? Um, I didn't see any U.S. TV. I didn't know about US TV until I moved here and that's when you enter a US school that's kind of the lingua franca and so I was like Charlie's Angels like mod squad I like I like I would go home from school and like watch reruns obsessively to try to figure out what to talk about and like what people were talking about and um it was hard and also sports no one cared about soccer you know people were talking about baseball and football and I was like and what is it? You know, um, I was like totally at sea and, you know, I'm also an only child. So like I didn't have any, any reference points for the weirdness that that I felt. I was alienated from my own culture and part of the the tension of the book and going back when the wall came down is like I thought for some reason I was going to be going home even though I had no, f- my fa- my father's back here now too. And so I like, Actually, I have no family, no friends there. So it's not really my home. And I'm, so I'm like kind of double alienated. And well, even triple alienated because the country I was born in doesn't even exist because it's not West Germany anymore. It's Germany and it's no longer a divided city. And
0: How much do you remember about the Cold War when you were living in Germany? Did they teach you certain things in school that stand out still about what it was like culturally there or politically?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was... It was ubiquitous there at the height of the Cold War, because I I was born in 64. There was a giant army base right near us, and they would scramble in the middle of the night. And so you would get, you know, tanks going down the street, B-52s flying overhead with fully armed B-52s. And going in and out of the country, we never flew. We would always take a train or drive. If you took the train, your train would get stopped on both borders. East German soldiers would flood the train looking for stowaways and they would go up up and below and they had German Shepherds and they it was like it was scary as a kid. You just had to be really still. You're going through a corridor of razor wire and armed turrets. It wasn't a theoretical thing. It was like all around you. And like during the Prague Spring, it was really tense. I was really little then, but my father told me that an army friend of his called and said, if I call again, just hang up, uh, grab your kid and go. There are troops on the border. Berlin could be cut off again. Because the, the Berlin airlift was still a very fresh thing to the citizens there. Berlin was 200 miles inside of communist territory. The Cold War wasn't a theoretical thing. It was like on top of you. and." The newspapers reported troop movements of the Russians and the East Germans. So it definitely had this this sort of tension in the air, but at the same time, it was a real cultural mecca because it was really cheap, because it was 200 miles inside of communist territory, <laughs> and there were all these, like, warehouse spaces, kind of bombed-out areas. So a lot of artists went there, and also because of... The post-war treaty made Berlin a neutral city outside of German conscription regulations. Mm. So if you were a citizen of Berlin, you didn't have to do your mandatory two years of, of service. So if you were a liberal and an artist, you tended to flock to Berlin. And it was a really welcoming place for expats like my parents. And so, there were, there were musicians and artists from around the world, and there was like this huge visual arts scene going on and a lot of collaboration like m- one of my ver- very earliest memories is my father playing in an avant-garde musical group in a modern art museum there were all these really cool collaborations going on and that's kind of the world i, I grew up in but at the same time it was like the heart of the cold war so it was like this weird floating island of possibility and coolness but also with B-52s flying overhead, you know, and annihilation. And we would, I went to the JFK International School. We had duck and cover drills, you know, every week that were not theoretical. You know, the teachers would like emphasize what would happen if these windows blew out. The glass would shred us unless we were all the way underneath our desks. It wasn't an exercise. It was like, this could happen kind of thing that was drilled into you as a little kid yeah
0: it's like a a tornado drill in the midwest or something like
1: that but also like all over when we go into the east there were large sections of the east that were not repaired and there were bullet holes everywhere so the war was even though it had ended 20 years before it was still a very fresh thing
0: so interesting that for your father that the pull of this artistic renaissance of a kind Mm -hmm. was enough to keep him in a possibly very dangerous situation with a very young child cuz not everybody could leave but he could have yeah. what was going through his head was it that inspiring
1: he's 80 years old and he still lives for his art he's still composing and art came first he went where the, the artistic possibilities were and that was where it was like red hot for him we went all over europe where he played concerts but you know berlin was the base and that was where the exciting and productive place for him
0: so from your perspective knowing Your own life and trajectory, would you say that for you he made a wise decision?
1: Well, I felt like it was a combination of feeling like Eloise in the Plaza. You know, it was like really cool, you know, being backstage and it was exciting. You know, I would go straight from school to backstage, had these amazing creative people all around me. So, yeah, I couldn't think of anything more exciting than living for your art. It was really cool. It wasn't until much later that... The questions of, like, stability and, you know, like, home, they seemed really weird to me. Why would you want stability or home or, you know, anything square like that?
0: Stay on the move. Do you feel like you have a sense of home in anywhere? Did you Or did you move too much as a kid?
1: It wasn't until I moved to New York, specifically to Brooklyn. And I've been in Brooklyn for 20 years. I've been in New York for almost 30 years now. But it wasn't until then that I felt that I was at home. And also, having kids changes that equation, too. I have two kids. I wanted them to have a very different experience than I did. I wanted them to have a feeling of safety and a home. They've never known anything but that one home, although they've traveled all over the world. But they know that there's a place to go back to. Like, I never knew that. I drifted from school to school and place to place.
0: And you felt like that was what detrimental to your life and that's not something you wanted for your children
1: when you're going through something you don't feel like it's strange it's just it's your reality but it created this difficulty of connection because you knew that you were going to leave in a year sort of perpetual putting on of masks trying to adapt to new places versus trying to figure out who you really are so i was always trying to fit in place to place to place for me that was a struggle not believing that I had my own self. Trying to figure out my own self was like a, a real struggle.
0: When you went back to Berlin, did you go after the wall or as the wall was coming down? A-
1: after, after the wall, it took me a few months to get there. Yeah, I felt this like kind of overwhelming urge to be there after the wall came down. I had initially thought I was gonna go to the west, but I immediately went into the east and just stayed stayed over there. I had this sort of uh, weird, deep feeling that I was home and that I, but I, that I was creating a home as Berlin was creating itself, that I would be there and this sort of new birth of a new possibility, especially in the East, in Prenzlauerberg, because there was all this potential possibility there. And there were a lot of artists and anarchists moving into these empty spaces and creating things before unification. Because what happened when the wall came down, sort of quickly voted to reunify but there was like a a 10-month lag before it would take effect so there was this limbo where east berlin and east germany didn't really exist basically and western authorities didn't have authority to come over yet and the eastern authorities weren't being paid so they all defected they all just left so the only authority in the east was the elite riot police And they would come in at night and just bust everybody's heads who was on the street, you know, if they were causing trouble. So there was this, like, weird power vacuum. So you could take over a building. We thought that would be permanent. You know, (laughs) this mistaken idea, that oh, they'll just let us stay, you know, in this illegal space. Even though there were signs of, like, this tidal wave of capitalism, like this tsunami lurking on the other side of the wall that was just going to crash down on it. You you could already see people poised to... But a lot of people were staying away because it was volatile, it was dangerous. There were a lot of skinheads throwing molotovs, so unstable place to be. How old were you? Uh,
0: How old? Uh, an average.
1: Yeah, I was 25. (laughs)
0: 25. I have two questions that come out of the skinhead thing. My first, I guess, is what were you there to do? What were you trying to do artistically? Besides trying to find a home, what were you exploring?
1: Um, Well, so I had this, I had these expat visions, so... I've taken one literature course in my life, but I worked in the Kelmscott used bookstore in Baltimore. I was always a voracious reader, and I was like, besotted with expat tales. Hemingway, James Baldwin, Isherwood, those were all my heroes, like people who had found their home abroad. So that's that was a vision I had. I was gonna go like write write a great novel in Berlin, but also on the ground floor of this rebirth of a really cool place and I would write these amazing dispatches from the front of that that was kind of the idea and I'd saved up a little bit of money so I could go but the weird thing that happened when I got there was that I felt really protective of the place and also superstitious that if I wrote about it people would discover it and it would it would go away you know it was just it was completely it was really delusional you know I was like I was talking about making art, but I I didn't write my novel. I didn't write any dispatches. I just sort of, I was just there. Kind of a grand failure. And it took me years to write about it. I had a lot of delusions, like one that it would be my home and that I would become one with the city and become this great artist there as well.
0: Do you have a sense of, from your childhood and from when you were there at 25, were they both equally charged artistic movement periods of time? there or maybe you can't judge because of your own perspective yeah. but, but I'm just curious if you could see a contrast or if they were similar in their they vibe yeah
1: they, they were similar in the but also very different on the east side there were all these young East Germans who had been doing creative stuff surreptitiously or in concert with government regulations they would get around them and now they had all this freedom but all their subsidies had vanished especially if you were in like the theater or literature you could get government subsidies and be subversive you just had to be subtle about it it was a game it was just like this constant game but that the government subsidies just vanished overnight and so there were all these people these artists who were like really struggling and and a lot of them were leaving to go to, like, the Crimea to wait tables, and, like, where they were, because there were no jobs. There were just no jobs in the East at all. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want to go over to the West. And they were looked down on by the Westerners as lazy, because they had, you know, worked in a communist system. So it was a very different vibe. It was, like, a really tense, somewhat exciting vibe. But it was also, there was, like, this ticking clock of reunification and, and a sense that they were going to be pushed out of their own country. The creative Westerners were going to come over and gentrify, which is what happened very quickly. Like as soon as I I left in reunification, like that whole neighborhood just got swept away, basically.
0: How? Was it just capitalism coming in and making everything expensive? Yes.
1: Well, it was like, you know, it was a typical, like what happened in New York with the Lower East Side, but in a very accelerated thing, like the hipsters moved in and then they were pushed out by, you know, strollers kind of tidal wave like that very quickly, because there are these big, beautiful, lofty apartments right near downtown Berlin that just were all of a sudden on the market.
0: So you said you saved money to go. Did you have a plan or did you just go in with these people and say, look, a building. Oh, you're an artist also. Like, how did, what happened? Like, how did you set yourself up when you got back?
1: Went over into the east, went into a bar, illegal bar started talking to the people, and they were like, oh, yeah, well, we got a place for you. you know, 20 marks, give me 20 marks a month, and it's yours. Westerners didn't really go over into the East yet because it was scary. And so if you went over, people really wanted to talk to you. It's like you'd walk down the street, and older people would grab you and take you into their house and make you dinner because they hadn't had an open conversation with a Westerner. It was really welcoming. Like in one night, got a place... And it was a cold water illegal flat, but some guy had the key. It wasn't intentional at all. This is what I was going to do. (laughs) It was just like, oh, okay, cool. (laughs) Like that works, you know. I'll I'll do that. And then it was also it was literally twenty marks a month, so like ten dollars a month. I could live here indefinitely, and like food was really cheap. I had planned to be a stringer. I had written some for Sports Illustrated. So I was going to cover like track and field and things like that. And I had written for other places as well. So I was going to do a combination of stringing work and then reporting. But I wound up doing nothing.
0: Just sitting around, what? Drinking. Drinking. A Drinking,
1: <laughs> Drinking a lot, hanging out. Yeah.
0: Did you keep any of those friends once you left?
1: Yeah, I corresponded with a bunch of them. Mainly this uh, an East German uh, physicist weirdly enough, who was a a specialist in neutrinos, you know, (laughs) because it was very democratic, these new spaces, and everybody wanted to talk to you. They really, really wanted to talk to Westerners, you know, it was, it was kind of amazing.
0: Before I have you leaving Germany, did you have any encounters with these skinheads that were particularly memorable?
1: I avoided them like crazy. I I never got caught out by them because you would just, you would hear the sirens. I was hardly a bandana-wearing anarchist looking for them, because there were a lot of people on my block were looking for them and were looking for fights. It was like, I was a total coward. <laughs> I really did not want to have my head busted. Uh, also, you know, I, being a U.S. citizen, I didn't want to wind up in a foreign jail. I would get stopped by patrols and show my passport and I have, since I have a German place of birth, and I have a Berlin accent, so I would be able to talk to them, but I really did not I had no interest in getting swept up.
0: Was it a situation where you could just stay for as long as you want? Or like, how did that work as far as?
1: Legally, I don't know. If I'd stayed through unification, then things would have gotten legally complicated, but I never had any issues. You didn't have to have a visa.
0: What caused you to leave?
1: (sighs) A combination of, I was newly married. I had dragged my wife there. I had swept her up in the delusion of of that place, kind of realizing that basically that I had fucked up, (laughs) that that I had dragged this person into like a really unstable, violent place that was actually not our home and that we actually needed to go back home to New York. This wasn't our fight, this wasn't our our home, Uh, that our home was actually in Brooklyn.
0: Your wife is also an artist of some kind. Yeah.
1: She's a writer as well, and the the irony was that she she was actually there writing while I was not. <laughs> you know, like I was all talk, you know, about all Hemingway and Baldwin, and she was actually just shutting up and doing the work.
0: Good for her. Yeah. But now you run a literary magazine, so you caught up. Yeah. Big editor now. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's funny. My um my daughter, who's twenty, when she read my book because the book ends when we come back to the u.s and uh, i'm kind of a total mess kind of admit defeat and that's where the book ends and um when she read it she said oh my god dad you were so together when you were 25 you knew exactly what you wanted to do well, that's one way to read it. And you're, like, literally the only person on the planet who could read it that way, you know. Everybody else is like, God, what a fuck-up you were. (laughs) Like, what a jerk you were to drag your wife to Berlin, you know, and put her in that danger. Because she didn't speak any German. She was just, like, totally trusting that I knew what I was doing. I didn't.
0: What does she think of the experience now? Does she think of it as a good time or...? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he'll never make a decision for this family again. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's fraud. She's from a, a very stable childhood, lived in the same place, grew up in Delaware, suburban Delaware, loving family, loving sister. She just had a very different experience. So the idea of adventure and throwing herself into danger was really cool to her. I mean, I'm speaking for her now. When we've talked, she doesn't regret that. She regrets trusting me so much. That's, <laughs> that's what she regrets. You're like, oh, yeah, Rob knows what he's doing. He's from here. So, yeah.
0: Would you say that the experience changed her as a person, though? Did she become a more bold, adventurous person because of the experience?
1: Now, she was always bold. I think she started asking more questions for herself. We became more partners after that versus listening to me impulsively go, hey, we should move to Berlin. After that, she was like, "Really? <laughs> yeah, like, that's a really dumbass idea." You know, yeah. But it was, you know, it was a formative experience for both of us.
0: Yeah. You know? I read in an article that you've also been to Africa, to Nairobi. Mm-hmm. How does that experience play in, at least from an artistic point of view, of what you saw there and what the artist movements were doing there?
1: Whew. Yeah, I've been a bunch of places in in Africa. I, I edited the Penguin Anthology of Contemporary African Writing. It's a really exciting time in a lot of places in Africa, creatively, because it's sort of, it's a little bit like India, 20, 25 years ago, where there was kind of movement to the cities of creative people, places like Calcutta, where you have five major languages and cultures coming together, and there's like all this creativity coming out of it, and you get like a, a Salman Rushdie, in a bunch of different places in Africa, you have the same kind of thing happening in Nairobi. And I taught in Lagos for a while. And Lagos is just like this crazy mishmash. There are 54 major languages in Nigeria. And it's just this crazy mix of, and also huge Islamic presence, but also huge fundamentalist Christian presence. And it's, it's a mess, you know? And, but there's a, all this energy there and creativity and money in Lagos too, because of oil. Lagos is twice the size of New York. So you have a city of 20 million people that's totally chaotic. There's a lot of energy and creativity there. I'm hopeful, but they're also economically and culturally a little, uh, you know, they've got a lot of problems.
0: Yeah. I think that's such an interesting concept though, to think about places that are in turmoil or facing poverty or all these different things about these artist movements rising up within them. I've never even thought about that until I heard about you. I don't even know why.
1: Well, I think, you know, a lot of great work comes out of unstable places where people are, a lot of refugees come in. You know, you think about post-World War I Paris, all the white Russians coming in, the Nabokov and people like that. Berlin in the 20s, as the Nazis were rising, that was a really exciting place and fraught. Post-war Paris, post-war New York, Lower East Side in the 70s, you know, really dangerous, volatile place, but all these people, uh, cultural refugees like Patti Smith and Robert Mapplethorpe coming in, but it was a, you know, unstable, dangerous time to be on the Lower Side. And uh, you throw in AIDS and violence and poverty, and you have a recipe for actually creativity, you know?
0: (laughs) What does that tell you about the artistic impulse that people have? Well, I think
1: they want to make sense of the senseless. There's the phrase, a stay against confusion. You're trying to make sense of all this chaos around you. and this the, you know, class, clash of cultures and uh, clash of times where things have been disrupted. Like what is the future gonna bring? We don't know, it's not like this stable thing. And that's one of the reasons I'm attracted to the African writing is that these people are writing at a really fraught time and they have a lot of meaning versus like a lot of the MFA fiction I, I see comes out of great stability. And there's not the sense of urgency. There's not like Wafiango, this this Kenyan writer, wrote an entire novel on toilet paper in jail that sympathetic guards smuggled out. He wasn't allowed paper. You know, I'm just like, I'm not seeing a lot of that in the U.S. <laughs> you know, I'm mean, like, I, I'm seeing stuff from prisoners, yes, and, you know, people on the edge, but there's a lot of also comfort here. you know.
0: And consequently is our writing at this point, since you've been an editor and searching out stories for so long, are we getting boring?
1: No, I think, but, uh, but I think there's a lot of competent fiction out there, you know, a lot of real competence, a lot of well put together fiction, but then someone like Rachel Kushner comes along. That's like, Oh shit. You know, there's like an urgency and a worldliness and like taking in geopolitical events and, not afraid to discomfort, you know, like what she read last night was really upsetting. You know, like you were just off balance the whole time going, oh my God, I'm just so uncomfortable and I'm laughing at this and, you know, I'm laughing at sexual violence. Like, how did you do that? You know, yeah. so.
0: It was a piece about prison. Yeah, yeah,
1: a uh, corrupt cop in prison. Yeah,
0: yeah. One last thing I wanted to ask you about was in your youth, you're this, Like many of us are in our youth are these kind of outsider artists that are trying to find not only our voice, but our way into the world so that we can share ideas. And then at some point you become established and now (laughs) you're in the position where you're, you're picking people, Mm -hmm. you're choosing who gets to be seen kind of like being on the outside and moving into the inside. What has that been like? Is that equally as big a transition for you as all the different moves and adaptations you've had to make?
1: Yeah, that's just something I'm I think about all the time these days. Being an outsider, you know, I have an undergraduate degree in psychology, and I snuck into publishing, basically. How so? I moved to New York with one hundred and fifty dollars to my name. Dropped out of grad school where I was studying sports psychology, so I ran track in college. I moved to New York with one hundred and fifty dollars to my name. Worked in a art postcard factory for a year until i got an entry-level job and at random house like kind of snuck in the back door kind of learned by doing from inside the first issue of tin house came out in 99 13th year of the festival it's still weird though for me when when people call me like the man and the establishment i'm like really (laughs) like (laughs) like, how did that happen and um (laughs) interesting because like uh, I brought in Kiese Lehman to teach here and he on the the first day gave one of the first lectures he said I've been chosen to come here I'm uncomfortable with being in this space and I want to burn it all down and you know that's my impulse too but it's it's weird like being considered the man you know in that space but I, I also have to acknowledge that I'm a straight white male with power. How do you reconcile that? And what do you do with your power? I choose people. The way I choose to exercise my power is to invite people like KZ into the space I've created and hopefully blow it up in some way or make space for more people of color, more people who don't have power to come up. I still inside feel like that powerless outsider looking at publishing like this weird fortress with people with thunderbolts on the turrets like trying to zap me for trying to crawl in you know so yeah there's that a a real disconnect
0: and has it changed how you view yourself as an artist (sighs) do you view yourself as an artist still
1: yeah that's a that's a tough question I mean it was um when writing the book I had uh reconcile what I have become with trying to express myself because what I have become is someone who's a, who's kind of an enabler who is able to promote other people's work and other people's voices and bring people forward and live vicariously through them i can invite jess walter here and like revel in the the glory that he you know has or i can publish him and you know take credit for like hey that was a great jess walter service like i know it was awesome you know and i get like yeah i can't believe i got to publish that how cool is that um but when you're writing a book, especially a memoir, you have to put yourself forward and your true feelings forward. And that's that's one of the reasons it took me 10 years to write it, <laughs> Like, because I'm, I'm very comfortable promoting other people and and pushing other people to express themselves. That's part of my job as an editor is like you're not being honest with yourself here. You've got to go deeper. You, you flinched at a crucial moment. I flinched for about seven years or (laughs) like trying trying to get myself to be honest with the material.
0: Do you know what, what about it was making you flinch the most?
1: Everything. (laughs) 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 Like all, all of it, you know, just like, I guess my own culpability and my own story, you know, not blaming outside forces, like acknowledging that I, that passivity was a choice and like, that I didn't just drift through my life with things happening to me. Like, I actually made choices that affected how I wound up in Berlin in the end. I'm trying to be honest with myself and empathetic to everybody else.
0: All right, I have one more. Just because it's been coming up as a theme in a lot of things I'm reading lately, and it's this notion of just feeling like inside you're a fraud. Everybody else thinks... Katie she really knew how to run that radio show (laughs) you know and 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 all you can see is like all the moments when you didn't quite know what you were doing and you were hoping that people didn't catch on
1: (laughs) yeah yeah.
0: is is that a human condition in your opinion or is that an artist condition I I think
1: it's both but it's really much worse in artists all artists I know feel like frauds and I think all all artists feel like their books are failures you know, like, and they should. I mean, because I think it keeps you, there's a little bit of that is healthy. I think if you think, oh, my God, I just wrote the perfect fucking book, you know, you're like, I think you probably didn't, you know. I think yeah. you're much rather be like Pete Townsend, like, smashing his guitar because he couldn't get the sound he wanted out of it than... A super vain person who's was like yes this is the best guitar solo ever look at me you know um, <laughs> yeah and I totally feel like a fraud all the time and like every even after the book has been published like every time I read from it I feel like sort of naked and exposed and like like who am I to be have written this book still that's a natural artistic thing but you know what what kind of got me through that and gets me through, like, still talking about it and doing events, is uh, thinking of myself as a teenager at the Kelmscott Bookstore and what stories did for me growing up, how they helped me find myself. I identified more with, like, the characters in the Chronicles of Narnia than myself, you know what I mean? Like, I felt more at home in Narnia than in my own skin even when you like start reading like more personal stuff like the prince of central park for me that was one or john irving for me when you like start reading like really personal emotional stories and reading about outsiders as a kid oh i'm not alone there are other fuck up alienated people out there so that's what got me through writing my own book is like if there's like one fucked up alienated teenager who reads this book and goes, Oh, wow, what a alienated fuck up he was, he somehow got through that, then it would have been worth it for me.
0: Well, the book is called All Tomorrow's Parties by Rob Spillman. And thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. It's been nice sitting by the river Ah, with you. And and of course, he's the editor and co-founder of Tin House, which is a literary magazine here in the United States. Can can people living abroad actually get Tin House somehow?
1: Um, it's easiest online digital most of it is online uh, just tinhouse.com we are carried in paris and london mainly and you can get physical copies but online is the much easier
0: all right so now you know and this is the bittersweet life i'm katie sewell we turn to you to help this show grow and thrive we can't do it without you so tell a friend or join our Facebook page at facebook.com/thebittersweetlife. You can also follow us on Twitter at bittersweetpod. We post pictures and essays in both places. And please review the show on iTunes if you never have before. You'll find links to Tin House and Rob's book at thebittersweetlife.net. And a big thank you to those of you who have donated to the show. We are so grateful. And if you wish, you got real mail from time to time. All our donors get handwritten thank you notes. That's how much it means to us. Your donation makes the show possible. It doesn't just disappear into some big organization's coffers. Every little bit is endlessly appreciated. Additionally, if you have a show suggestion or you want to sponsor the program, write to mail.com to get the conversation going. We adore you guys. Thanks for everything.